This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Transforming 45. This week, uh, I'm really excited to have a guest who we connected on a global podcast group and we live within an hour and a half of each other. So it felt like this conversation was meant to happen. So I'm so glad today to have Ray Wright, who is an author, an artist, and an art educator. And in our pre-meeting, we talked about a lot of different things. And so uh, this podcast is going to be it's going to go to the heart. I, I know that it is. Um, so Ray, it, although is very patiently waiting for me because <laughs> just before we got on this call, something really exciting happened for me and she's graciously giving me a few minutes to put this out there. So for those of you who listened to the episode on my, your life as a soundtrack. So that was three, three weeks ago, man, time is evaporating at the moment. It's bananas. But three weeks ago, I published that episode that looked at the somatic connection we can make with our bodies through music. And the response I got back from that podcast was really beautiful and people were talking about what a process it is. And so I did a thing. I wrote a journal to walk people through the whole process and it arrived today. <laughs> I'm so excited. So those of you who are watching are seeing me hold up this journal. Those of you who are listening, I am holding up this journal <laughs> and it is beautiful. I absolutely love everything about it. It walks you through the process. So it starts, uh, there's an, there's an introduction. I'll just read the, the last little bit. So I hope that through this exploration, you'll find some solace, inspiration, and the joy of harmonizing your inner world with the symphony of life around you. So take a deep breath, open your heart and let the melodies guide you as you embark on this transformative journey. The stage is set. The first song awaits. Let us begin. And then there are the instructions that walk you through the process for how to create your own set life soundtrack. So the 15 songs, this is the first part where you just sort of brainstorm. Um, so where you create your 15 song soundtrack or however many songs it turns out to be, because I cheated a little bit and mine was actually 16. But anyway, <laughs> um, so that's the first part. And then there is an additional 
element. Oh, actually, before I jump into that. So then once you come up with your list, there's a spot to tell the story for each song and what it means to you so that you can really flesh that out. And then there is a 100 day journey and there are instructions for this as well. But the 100 day journey starts with a song. So each day you choose one song for whatever reason. Uh, and there's prompts around what memories, what sensory memories does that song trigger for you? Uh, explore the smells, tastes, sights, sounds, and tactile sensations that come to mind. And then consider the qualities of the song, its lyrics, the melody, energy, how can it empower you or offer you solace throughout the day? So it's a way to connect to something that helps bring you back to your body because so many conversations I have with women is I don't know how to reconnect. So this is a really concrete way of doing that. And then there is an evening reflection at the end of the day where you can come back and just sort of reflect on how that song helped you connect to yourself throughout the day. So um, this is going to be available on Amazon uh, probably tomorrow. So the link will go out and will be available. And um, I am just so excited. I have my name on a thing. That's me, <laughs> the author. Ray, thank you for your patience. Thank you for letting me do that. And welcome. I'm so glad you're here today. Oh, I'm glad to be here. And congratulations. That's such an, an accomplishment. Thank you. Yeah, it feels really great. Well, you as an author, you also have us, you, you've had a similar experience. Yes. Yeah. Um, the very first time having that book show up at the very front at the front door. And you know what, I've got three books and it happened three times and I got excited the same way each time. So it's, um, it's kind of awesome. The, the very first time that it happened, though, my husband did record the whole process of me opening up the door and finding the, the bag with the book in it. And yeah, that's, it's kind of cool to like watch that and be like, wow, I was really excited. Yeah. <laughs> That's beautiful. I didn't even it I didn't even cross my mind. I just was so excited and wanting to get my hands on that thing. Yeah. <laughs> and nobody else sure. was home. So but that's okay. <laughs> okay. So Ray, um, tell me your story. How did you get to where you are today? Um, honestly, like it's it's been kind of a crazy roller coaster of things, um, uh, professionally and personally, uh, because I started, I'm going to not get into like being a child, obviously. No one wants to hear all that stuff. But <laughs> I mean, if you want to know, I do have four brothers and four sisters. So growing wow. up, there was a lot okay. of us in the family. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so like being around so many children, it kind of like fostered a love of working with children. So I became an early childhood educator when I decided to go to post-secondary, decided to study ECE. And I did that and then decided to go a little bit further with that. And I studied mental health, uh, specifically children's mental health. And I went from studying that um, to working with children and working with um, children who have autism and FASD. That was really where my specialty kind of lay. Um, and then working with um, educators and teaching them how to interact with children who um, may have some um uh, like cognitive and, uh, and physical and even social uh, development needs. 
So I uh, spent some time doing that. And um, unfortunately, working with some of these children, there are movements that are hard to predict. Uh, I ended up breaking my nose one too many times. Um, and when I say that, I mean 14 times. <laughs> um, yeah, so the the last time that it happened, my, my doctor did say, like, you know what, you probably shouldn't be doing this anymore. Um, but, you know, I didn't get into the field to do paperwork. Uh, so I went home, I told my husband, I was like, you know what, like, this is what the doctor said. And I ended up, I developed PTSD from it, um, mm -hmm. from how many injuries that I had sustained. And it was recommended, yeah, that I no longer work in the field in that kind of capacity. So mm -hmm. when my husband asked me was like, you know, what do you want to do? And so I told him, I was like, you know what, I want to do art, I, I would like to paint. <laughs> and he's like, all right, quit your job, do that. We'll figure uh -huh. it out. So yeah, yeah, that's really beautiful. And I know that there's more to your story. And we're, we're going to go to that as well. I didn't want to miss the opportunity, though, to talk about when we there's so much in our world right now around kids, and what's wrong with these kids. Mm -hmm. And I can tell from your heart, that that's not the conversation right? That your nose was broken 14 times, not because there's something wrong with the kids, but because there is something wrong with the system, right? The system that puts kids into places where it's almost impossible for them to regulate because of the amount of stimulus that is around them, we know so much more now about how brains work, be it typical, neurotypical or atypical. And most of the things that we set up in the public school system really set kids up to fail in a lot of ways. And so I just, I, I feel like it's so important because I know people will say like, oh my gosh, that poor woman and those kids. And yeah, it's awful that your nose was broken 14 times and there's significant issues with the system. I don't know if you want to reflect on that at all. Yeah, it just, there were some situations that um, it, they re it resulted in there being too much stimulation in the room. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I applaud certain centers and uh, certain schools and everything for wanting to have this kind of inclusion for all of the children. But if you're not going to make the environment suitable for all children, it's setting them up for failure. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're going to have that kind of inclusive atmosphere, you need to have it all encompassing rather than just saying, yeah, we're just going to put everybody into the same room and have the expectation that everybody follows the same guideline. Um, mm -hmm. But you're putting the guideline to someone who has that capacity to, to sit and listen and follow the instructions of the teacher uh, the way that the teacher would like rather than what the children need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's what, that's what they learned, right? The majority of educators, and I don't want this to sound like I am bashing educators. I am very recently an educator. Um, and, and I can see it in myself. In many ways, the school system worked for us, right? That's why we wanted to be teachers for the most part, because we loved school, it, we felt like it worked for us, and we wanted to be part of that 
work. And it also means that you come from a, a perspective that is a little different than the wide perspective and understanding of how that system impacts this spectrum of humanity that walks through those doors, mm -hmm. right? And teacher's college and the system itself is not set up in a way that is supportive of the humanity of the people doing the work. So I also, you know, I'm so grateful to those educators who are there, who are there, you know, every day showing up, being there for kids. And at the same time, they're putting themselves in harm's way for a system that refuses to do things differently and put the resources that are necessary in place to support for all children to be able to feel safe, seen, loved, and supported. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, making it so for the children and for the educators, um, because there are certain situations that I have seen, not just myself with my, my own personal injuries, um, but with a couple of the teachers that I worked with and injuries that they had sustained and they were quite severe compared to what I had to endure their, their situations were a little bit more severe than what I had, what I had gone through. Um, but it's because of a lack of support that was in the room. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah. And that's what I mean, like people who are putting themselves in harm's way, I have seen many fabulous educators have to leave this career because of concussions and post-concussion syndrome, that it just is, it's impossible to come back to that kind of setting when you've had that kind of traumatic brain injury. Yeah. And yeah, so... I am so glad that you are okay and that you have found a, a way to express all of your skills in a way that allows you to be safe and seen and, and creative. Yeah, I actually, I ended up going full circle, I guess, with the um, way that things have kind of transpired because I went from being an early childhood educator and teaching the children, um, and then I left that to pursue my art. And from there, I ended up falling back into my my teaching ways, and I began teaching my art again, um, and then developing like a YouTube channel. And throughout COVID, I had a, a whole host of of sessions that I was teaching things um, over like Facebook Live and everything because art is such an important factor to mental health. And I had many people from all over the world that were following these tutorials, um, and it was because of those global lockdowns. But so many people needed that. Um, and then I very, very recently uh, did my very, uh, yesterday, like that's how recently, um, did my very first, um, uh, I guess, public speaking engagement uh, to talk to the importance of mental health um, with children and the importance of doing art with a trusted grown up in children uh, just to help develop those social and emotional skills uh, to help them understand um, their, their mental health and their coping mechanisms and how important it is that adults do it before they can help the children and then the children do it. And then it's just this beautiful cycle that starts to develop. And so I'm going, I seem to be going back into those schools now and, and, and helping the educators and the children with that kind of connection. Um, 
I was not foreseeing that to happen, but uh, it's, it's nice that it went that way. <laughs> that's really, that's a really exciting and it's really important work. And um, it, in me with my journal and that podcast and you and your art, bringing back the focus on creativity, right? because I think it's been the value of creativity has been lost in many ways, especially in the role it plays in our mental health. And in some ways, I think people were starting to come back to it during the pandemic because it was a way, it was an outlet, right? Like you just said, you had people from all over the world tuning into your videos. And I know I personally, like I went back to dancing, I was learning to play the piano again, I was going back to those creative pursuits. And then coming out of the pandemic, not being able to sing in schools, having to be in rows, having to be separated, not being able to play instruments, not being able to access the gym. It's like all of those beautiful seeds that were planted went back underground. I don't want to say they were extinguished. They're not. They're always there, but they are back underground. So this work that you're doing, of especially working with the adults, because so much we make opportunity for kids to engage in their creative side, but adults don't often give themselves this permission to do that. So I think this work that you're doing is so important. Thank you so much. Yeah, during the the talk last night, there was a, a Q&A afterwards. And this one person told me that when she was a child, an educator told her that when she did her little, she was like seven years old at the time, she did the lollipop tree, you know, like the the very basic brown line. And then you have a circle, the green on top. And the educator shamed her and told her that that's not how you draw a tree. And she told me she had never, she never decided to paint again or draw again after that point. And she was very, very um, apprehensive about trying anything like that. And like, I teach these art classes and everything. And she's like, I would never even consider doing something like that because of that fear that I have. And it's so, I'm going to say frustrating to hear mm -hmm. as an educator that another educator would openly say that to somebody and shame someone, especially when they're so young and impressionable in a social situation where, especially like seven years old, between seven and nine, I find with, with young girls is where the, uh, the pullback from creativity does start to happen between seven and nine years old, uh, which is heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Um, but last night at the end of the talk, I told her as soon as we, we had a little talk, conversation and everything. And I told her, I give everybody in this room permission to be creative again. And, you know, when yeah. I say creativity, I don't mean, you know, drawing. I don't mean painting. Like interior design is creativity. Gardening is creativity. Coding is creativity. And medicine's creativity. Yes. <laughs> Yes, I'm cheering for you <laughs> over here. Absolutely. There's so much and, and sorry, just going back to your story. Unfortunately, it's that's a very familiar story, right? We whether it be an educator or some sort of instructor or even parents, right? Because especially um when we were younger and it still exists to some extent some point in society today, but there's such an emphasis on creating the same 
right? That everything that there's a there's a particular way of doing something. So the sky must be blue, the trees must be green, the grass must be must be green, the trunk must be brown, all those sort of things. And it is um, Ken. Have you heard of Ken Robinson? I have not. No. Okay, I'm going to send you some stuff after this. But Ken Robinson um, was an educational leader who focused on the power of creativity and how important it was to bring creativity back into schools and give children the opportunity to use their creativity in all of those different areas. I used to, with my kiddos, really emphasize that math is creative. And they would, I had them in grade six, so they'd be pushing back. They're like, math is not creative. I was like, yes, it is. <laughs> there actually isn't just one way, right? There are multiple ways. And so I was, I loved that element of bringing out creativity in, in, in areas where you wouldn't necessarily think it, it, it resides. Yeah, absolutely. Because you can see creativity in every single facet. Like there's no matter what you do, like cooking is creative. Baking's creative. Um, I mean, writing a short story is creative, but like the, the funniest thing too, when I mentioned that coding last night, I, I had mentioned that coding was creative and somebody was sitting there and he's like, you know, I'm a programmer and I'm going to say, yeah, coding, you have to be pretty creative with that. And it's true because there's in so many different ways in our lives that those little facets of creativity that are just kind of ingrained in us. Because everybody, we start creative and that drive to be creative does not leave us. No, it doesn't. And it's the bottling up of that creativity that creates walls within ourselves, right? You know, when you were talking about young girls who are seven to nine starting to pull back, it's because they're starting to be aware that the world around them is judging them. Yeah. And that's just it. Like, it's so... I feel as a as a former young girl, now a woman, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's kind of frustrating, I guess, because at that age, that seven to nine, which is such an important, impressionable time in our lives. But from my experience working with children, it's seven to nine for girls and usually 10 to 13 for boys. So mm-hmm. they have that just that little bit of extra time to, you know, be that creative like without like fear but those young girls they it starts so much earlier you know even that that three years that's a very three years is a lot of time for children (laughs) yeah it's a huge developmental leap you know when your life is only when your life is only seven years three years is a is a massive chunk of time right yeah and so much happens developmentally Mm -hmm. in that time as well Right. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting thinking about the different ways that genders express creativity. I think there's so much judgment often. So my youngest was a hip hop dancer when he was younger. He loved to dance. He loved to be on the stage, but a time came and, and I used to love, there would be at the end of the year, there would be this day where, because he also played ball hockey. So he'd have his ball hockey championships and we would drive directly from his last game to the theater. And then he'd get on stage and dance. And I loved that, 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 that 
could coincide together for him. And when we talk about what creativity looks like, there's so much judgment around the way boys engage in in creative pursuits in many ways. And yet there's also so much creativity that exists in sport. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. That exists in, in places that people maybe don't see it. And if only we could look at that and recognize that creativity is just creativity, no matter how it expresses itself or how you show it. Imagine the opportunity that could open up for for everyone to be able to participate in ways where they actually see themselves. And for people to acknowledge that what they're doing is something creative, because Mm -hmm. there was a a conversation that I had with a gentleman who very, very into sports. And uh, he kept like, I was talking to him about how I was an artist and he had that look in his face, like, Oh, an artist, another artist. And he was like, you know, I I can't even draw a stick figure. And I was like, okay, well, I mean, you do sports, right? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, you teach sports, right? And like, he's like, yeah. I'm like, do you have a playbook? And I could just see him stop. Like, plays are creativity. You can draw a stick figure. If you have a playbook, you have even just little circles, that still counts. But the way that you are making your plays to get your players from one side of the field to the other to, you know, dodge this and and pivot over those, that's creative thinking. You're being creative. <laughs> like you did not I don't think you appreciated the fact that I was like, oh, you're an artist. <laughs> but exactly. yeah. It but again Yeah. Um, and again, because it's so wrapped up in all of the stigma that has developed around the arts, mm-hmm. right? That the arts are not that valuable. And just before we like move on from this topic, I just, because I'm a huge Ted Lasso fan. I don't know if you've, if you've not watched the show, Ted Lasso, it's the most beautiful example of how sports are creative and the artistry that's created, not only in the, like in the show, but in the way they create this beautiful environment that is inclusive in a very highly competitive professional sporting world is, is spectacular. And I digress a little, but just a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But when we think about how, yeah, how creativity has been devalued, right? When things are cut, the first things to go are arts education, music education, um, all of those, you know, when I think back to when I was in school, I had a music teacher in from grade six through, well, all the way through, I had a music teacher. Starting in grade six, we had instruments, both woodwinds and strings. Um, 
there was, we had an art teacher, we went to an art room and those things don't exist. I mean, in some schools they do, but very rarely for the most part, like one educator is expected to be responsible for all of those things. And it just shows that we don't put the value that is necessary on creativity. Because if we allow kids to be creative in all there's it opens up so many opportunities for learning in all subject areas, right? Like we can, my kid, my kid right now, actually, I will say I'm grateful is working. He's in um, grade 11 U bio. And yes, it's a June project. So I, I do recognize that, but he's writing a song about the components of a spruce, of a spruce tree. <laughs> That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. But it's those places where we can infuse creativity in all its forms to give kids an opportunity to show who they really are. Mm I 100% agree. Yeah. Yeah. And in our going back to our conversation about, you know, boys and girls, Mm. we also live in a non-binary reality, in a non-binary world, which is making our world a much more beautiful place. And when we start removing that stigma about, well, you know, girls do this and boys do this, when we have non-binary leading the way of this is how we embrace it all, Mm -hmm. It's so, again, so important to start removing that stigma around it, not being an important, not being important and having very gendered expectations around who participates in what. Yeah. Uh, there have been a couple of times where I've gone into schools and I've had educators, I'll, I'll go in there and they'll, they'll ask beforehand. It's like, okay, well, what are we going to be painting or drawing today? And then I, I usually talk with the, with the teachers about what they are, uh, their expectations for curriculum um, need to be met. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll come in with a couple of different ideas of things we can do. And I've had it a couple of times where the educators have said, okay, well, this one we'll do with the girls and this one we'll do with the boys. Mm-hmm. And I always, every single time that's ever happened was, how about we show the children the options and we let them choose yes. which one they want to do? Because I'm not about to sit here and be like, Boys cannot paint flowers. I'm not about to sit here and say that because 100% can boys paint flowers if they wanted to. Yes. Yeah. Look at Van Gogh and Monet, right? The Impressionists. (laughs) Of course. Of course. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So tell me about your books. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So I wrote and I illustrated my children's books. And the very first one I ever did is this one. So it's the alphabet book, um, but it's a Billy and Rory story, which are my children. I illustrated them into the book to talk children through the alphabet and how to um, like all of the different things that connect to the alphabet, which people have told me they absolutely love that the options in here are not traditionally what you would see in some alphabet books which um, the, the favorite one actually seems to be for Q. Um, let me just show you here. Q is for Quokka. Yeah, <laughs> for love Quokka. a Quokka. <laughs> um, but I actually, I, that was unintentional. Creating this story was an, unintentional because 
I wrote it when my son was sick last year. Uh, he was so sick, he had a double ear infection that was antibiotic resistant, was in the hospital. He was severely dehydrated. Uh, at the time, my daughter was only a few months old. So mm. I was with him in the hospital. I had her in a baby wrap around me and I was trying to distract him. So to help make everything better for him and a little less scary, uh, we started to talk about the alphabet because he was really interested in that. And before I knew it, I was painting and drawing for him to show him, you know, like, oh, well, this is what a quokka looks like. Um, and then I wrote a little poem about a quokka. And then I wrote a poem about a jellyfish. And before I knew it, I had written an entire book. And I made a book. And I, I published it myself. <laughs> um, so, I'm sorry? That's beautiful. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I had, um, I wrote it myself, I illustrated it myself, um, I did all of the, um, the editing of it, um, I, I published it myself, I did all the marketing, um, and then I decided, you know what, that wasn't uh, stressful enough, let's do it another time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I wrote When Dinosaurs Dream. Uh, this one is actually geared to younger children, so I would say about zero to 12 months. Um, and it is illustrated a little bit more than the other ones are. The pages, sorry, the pages are a little bit more full. And, uh, yeah, I just wanted something for like the itty bitty little ones, but I actually mm -hmm. wrote that one for my son when he was very little and not sleeping through the night. <laughs> um, and then I'm going back over to the book of colors and which I absolutely love. And people have told me that. The, their children are obsessed with this book. People have purchased all three of them. And uh, there have been a couple of people who have messaged me and said that their kids don't want to read the other ones because they're stuck on this book of colors. And it, it's really interesting. But I was trying to like figure out why the children really seem drawn to this. Um, drawn to this little <laughs> hard humor. I see um, what you did there. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so the book actually starts out in black and white. And as the book progresses and it goes through the colors of the rainbow, new colors are added and it gets more colorful as you go, which is pretty cool. <laughs> that is beautiful. Thank you. And I think my, my guess as to why kids are so drawn to that is because we all have those moments where we feel like life is a little bit black and white. Mm -hmm. And when we see it begin to fill with color, it gives us, it gives us some hope, right? right. There's something mm -hmm. deeply powerful and moving about color. And we, we had talked earlier also about the importance of art in working through trauma. So how have you used art to help you walk through some of your trauma through your traumatic experiences? Um, yeah, so I was actually born with a, uh, a tumor in my face. Um, it was pretty big, but the, the doctors did say not, not to worry about it, told my parents that it, it's, it's fine, just leave it the way that it is. If it starts to grow and hurt, we'll deal with it then. Um, but then it started to, uh, when I was around 12, 13 years old and I ended up having six surgeries, um, pretty much back to back to back because once the first one was done, 
it started this horrible, <laughs> um, just downward spiral of the tumor was growing back more aggressively with every surgery. Um, and it was just getting bigger and it was just getting way worse. Um, and I, I had been painting and drawing for a while. And then this hit and I didn't want to do anything. I had zero creativity, zero drive to do anything. And again, at that very impressionable preteen age, right? Um, which made me want to pull back. And I didn't have anybody at that point to try to encourage me through it. Uh, so I just stopped. And then I didn't get my clean bill of health until I was around 24 years old. Um, and I had some pretty significant surgeries with uh, one particular surgeon who was able to find out why this was continuing to happen, um, which resulted in a pretty significant surgery to remove all of the tissues. Uh, sorry to get a little graphic there. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we were able to figure out what the damage was, uh, how to fix it. And I received my clean bill of health. And as a thank you to my surgeon, I actually painted for the first time in years. Um, and I made him this bald eagle in blue and I, I gifted it to him. And after handing it to him, I remember it was in my hands and I was giving it to him. And just as I did that, it just clicked all over. It was like the act of actually making this painting for somebody was such a stress relief was such a, a coping skill for me. And it just made me wish that I could go back in time and had continued painting throughout because it would have significantly improved my mental health during that incredibly trying time. So mm -hmm. it really helped me through that. And ever since that had happened, I have not put my paintbrushes down. I have been consistently painting since that point every single day. There were years before my children were born, I was actually painting 12 to 14 hours a day. It was, That's incredible. yeah, it was all encompassing in my life. I was obsessed with just being creative. I guess I just had built up so much uh, that I was just like, you know, I need to get this out. So I got all of my creativity out the door with that. And then my children came along and then it just seemed to change. And I'm using my art to connect with my children more. And so like my son would be like, mommy, can you paint me or draw me, you know, a giraffe or a gorilla or something. And so I'm making my art for my children. And then I'm also like making these children's books to try to encourage other people to do it. And then I'm using the skill sets of my art to teach other people art so that they can teach their children art. I don't know. There was a, um, a, a group of researchers they did this paper recently published a few months ago. They had gifted families art boxes throughout the pandemic so that they could engage in art with their children from zero to three. And what they found was the attachment and the social emotional development between the parent and the child that were gifted these art boxes was way more, the attachment was way more developed than those that did not have those boxes. That's fascinating. It really, really, it was absolutely wonderful, wonderful paper to read. So I highly recommend uh, checking it out. Um, I had just, it was just a Google thing that I was, I was just looking up some, some stuff for myself and I just happened to cross that article and I highly recommend looking for it. It's um, art, art in a box and it's a research paper. Okay. Yeah, yeah I absolutely will. And 
You know, thinking about how we work through this collective trauma that we have all experienced in being through a global pandemic, an environmental crisis, uh, you know, all of a race revolution, all of the things that are currently happening. Mm-hmm. It's it's almost like we're coming more and more disconnected from each other, especially, you know, parent and, and young human, because parent is often engaged with a device Mm -hmm. rather than engaged with the child's and art seems like, you know, that paper is probably showing that as well, that art is a great way or creativity. However, that art expresses itself as a way to actually connect and be engaged with something physical and somatic that both child and parent can um, engage in. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And like realizing too, um, because uh, there were some things that like, when I was pregnant with my children, I don't know if you've ever seen them, the belly castings. Oh, yes. Yeah. So I love belly castings. I think that they're absolutely beautiful. Um, But I had gone through years of infertility. And when I found out I was pregnant, I was like, okay, well, no, like, it's not actually going to happen. Is it really going to happen? But I remember when I went through my second trimester, I was like, I think I can do it. I'm going to do this belly cast. So my third trimester, I made my belly cast. And it was such a cathartic, absolutely wonderful moment to be doing this because my husband was the one who was helping me with this. And I feel like... If you're going to do a belly casting, doing it with your partner is the the way to go about it. I absolutely 100% agree with doing that because it is such a, it's such an emotional connection to, to do this because there's, there's so much involved, a tactile experience involved in it. And like you're, you're getting your, your husband to, or your, your, your partner rather, I should say to, um, uh, to to put this the 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 strips along your belly and however you want to design it. Now some some women like to have it like to their arms, like up to their necks, all the way down to like I've seen women do like the hips and everything. So, but like that's such an important like personal part of our body. It's our trunk, our it's our support, right? So to have somebody being so gentle and kind while you're growing your baby and making this art creation that you have this tactile art creation. It was such a wonderful way to connect with my with my husband throughout the end of ending of our pregnancy, especially after going through so many years of infertility. And so and and then like I have this this wonderful little belly cast that my my children love because I did it with both of my children. They see my belly casts and they come up and it's like, this was me and mommy's belly. And again, it's just that connection, that art connection between myself and my husband, but also with my children. Mm, that is that is so beautiful and you can heal you can hear the healing in that right when particularly when fertility has been a struggle and this has been something that has not come in the way that society tells us it's going to be right uh which I'd love to have you come back and maybe we'll do another episode on, on the fertility journey because it's so important to tell that story because it is so central to the stories of so many women. And yet, while it's beginning to be a little bit more prevalent in the collective, it's still not talked about 
enough in ways that women can really start to see themselves and recognize their own journeys and know that they're part of community, right? Because so much of motherhood, there's community in all kinds of different ways, some, some harmful and some supportive. Uh, but having those moments to be able to come back to, to remember, you know, I wish I had done that because having children who are now adults, like I have an 18 year old and an almost 17 year old. And there are moments that I remember so clearly, like the first, the first time I felt that, that little flutter or the way they would move in big ways, like orca whales, and my whole belly would go from one side of my body to the other. And it was just the most incredible thing. And I loved that time so much. So being able to have something so tactile that was also created by you and your partner is a really lovely, um, deeply creative and somatic way of representing that, that time. Oh, 100%. Like it, it was just, it's wild to see, like, I, I'm, I am glad that I did that. It was one of like the most, uh, what I remember going through all the infertility and thinking to myself, like, I just can't wait for this because I want to do this. It's like, I didn't really care about doing the maternity photos. That wasn't something that like, I still did them because my partner really wanted to have them done. I was like, yeah, I guess I can smile for a camera. But for me, it was doing that belly cast because it is such like you, I, I look at the belly cast and I'm just taken back to that point of going through the pregnancy and, you know, feeling those first flutters. And like, for me, I never had the opportunity because like, I, I didn't see the wave happen because of where like placenta was and baby was sitting and everything that never got mm -hmm. to happen for me. But uh, at the same time, just those little kicks and everything are like being jolted awake in the morning. Just like, nope, <laughs> I guess I'm awake now. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's, Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no. We're good. I was just going to say it's such a sacred time, right? Yes. When you are, yeah, when you are literally creating another life inside you, it is, you know, it's not always pretty and it's not always pleasant. And every woman has very, has a very different experience with it. But in all of it, there is um, a sacredness that deserves to be celebrated oh absolutely and yeah like and I, I would say too like each experience every time you are right because mm -hmm. with my son and with my daughter I had two very very wildly different experiences yeah I bet yeah, yeah. each it's a, like you know that each um, little seed comes with a whole lot that you can tell before they even before they even enter the world and the way they impact your body as they're growing oh absolutely yeah and like <laughs> with my daughter when I was pregnant with her because it was so different than with my son I remember telling my husband I was like because we didn't find out that the whether we were having boys or girls we wanted to be surprised at the birth and uh throughout my pregnancy with my daughter I remember thinking to to myself just because it was such a different experience I was like if this isn't a girl like I just don't even I'm pretty <laughs> sure it's a girl <laughs> but it was uh funny too because my my son kept patting my belly throughout my pregnancy saying oh it's baby girl's sister like Aww. could be a boy honey you don't know and then mm -hmm. we came home with baby girl sister oh <laughs> You go ahead. I'm going to I'm going to mute for my dogs. Oh, okay. 
yeah sorry no I just uh yeah I just I thought it was absolutely amazing that my my son was uh was able to to figure out that we were having a girl before we even knew we were having a girl and they're both IVF babies um and they were taken at the same time they were frozen at the same time and it just so happened my son came first and I don't Mm -hmm. always necessarily believe in that kind of thing but if I ever were to believe in that kind of thing I would 100% believe in it because from the moment they met each other they've they've known each other Mm -hmm. it's it's a weird thing to explain because I had this one photo of my son looking at my daughter for the very first time and it wasn't a oh I'm so excited to meet you it looks like a I am so happy to see you again. Yeah, That's I know expression. you. Yeah, it, the, the, yeah, I know you and I'm so glad to see you. There's a children's book um, called I Knew I'd Find You. And mm. it's a story. It's an IVF story um, that somebody had, had sent to me. And it's uh, there's two babies who meet Earthside. And it talks about the process of like the whole IVF process. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden they're babies on the other side. And it's just like, I knew I'd find you. And it's so, it feels so much like my children's story because I feel like they know one another. They're, they're so aware of one another all the time. They're so friendly with one another. They are constantly looking out for each other. And I mean, every once in a while, my daughter will come over and ask for like a treat out of the pantry. So I'll give her like a cookie, but she'll stand there with her hand out for a second cookie, but she doesn't want one for her. She immediately will take both cookies, walk over to her brother, and hand him one. Mm-hmm. That's so beautiful. And Pat, there is something about children being so close to source, right? Whether they can express it or not, they have this intrinsic knowledge and belief that m- many humans lose as they age. But that deep connection to source and to each other is just, it's so powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, for sure. I just love that story. So I just had to like, it's just a cute story. (laughs) It's a beautiful one. And I love it. And thank you for sharing. And thank you for sharing all of your beautiful wisdom with us today. I will make sure that um, all of your links for where people can find you to work with you, to purchase your books, um, to learn from you. I'll make sure that that is all in the show notes. So listeners, if you want to connect with Ray, the information will be there. Um, And if you want to purchase her books, that will be there as well. Um, as well as my own journal. So <laughs> it's exciting. All right. Thanks, Ray. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast. Back to the arena, the interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock band like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the interview. Electric Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electricast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electricast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electricast Podcasts and hear the culture. Electricast.